this is Penny Johnson, and you're listening to From Stage to Page, an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In this episode, we continue with My Life and Dancing, written by Maud Allen and published in 1908 by Paul R. Reynolds. Chapter 9 Criticisms and Letters As I write, the thought comes into my head to tell of the different impressions my dances have made and the resulting criticism. One of the objections I have encountered, and one that I would love to overcome, is that of kind Archdeacon Sinclair. Although he has not seen my portrayal, he was quite shocked at the thought of dragging Salome from the pages of the Bible and flaunting her crime before the public. He seemed to think the use of the head of John the Baptist, the forerunner of our Saviour, was irreverent and unnecessary. Accordingly, one afternoon I went to see him at the chapter house, and I shall never forget his kindness and courtesy. His gravity and dignity impressed me greatly. I immediately realized that if I could only impress him with the genuineness of my work, to say nothing of converting him to my idea of the dance, I should be more than satisfied. I am pleased to see you, he said, and I bowed my thanks as gravely as he had spoken. Appreciating that his kindness was great in seeing me at all, I did not waste time by explaining much of the preliminaries. I hear that you object to my vision of Salome. I have come knowing you would be just enough to tell me why. So I will. And do not for a moment think that I have at any time said that your work is not artistic, for I am sure from all I hear and have read that it is, and from your manner I should judge both you and your work quite serious. But, he continued, I feel there are Christians in my flock who may be repulsed at the thought of Christ's forerunner being made the subject of a scene for the stage, or, for that matter, any biblical story being put on the stage. I felt it my duty to pass this criticism upon this one number of your program. I explained my views, and he listened so kindly that it would have been an extreme pleasure to me to have given in to his way of thinking immediately, had it been in my power to do so. But we parted friends, good friends, and I am happy, as happy almost as though his thoughts were in absolute accordance with my own on this subject. Not long afterwards, I had the great pleasure of attending service at beautiful St. Paul's, and of being, together with my parents, his guests at the chapter house to tea, and then I met his charming sister and many of his dearest friends. I have received numberless letters, from the great to the low in your land, dear reader, 
and I can truthfully say that not one in a hundred has ever been other than full of appreciation of my efforts. Appreciation, well-meant suggestions and criticisms, but always kind. Numerous begging letters, too, reach me with every post. Each writer seems to think he or she alone is asking my assistance. Would I could help all the really needy ones, but, believe me, it would be impossible. It is curious they should call upon me, a stranger in their city, terming me as the only one in the whole world I can call upon. London is so full of charities, more than any other city I know of. Surely many of my letter-writers would be assisted if they would lay their troubles as plainly before these good people as they do before me. The one letter out of every hundred has always been an anonymous one, and, perforce, a nasty one. However, these have never had the effect upon me the writers intended them to have, as, to me, only those who feel they can defend their stand if drawn into controversy and be true to their conviction are worthy of consideration. An anonymous letter writer is, to my mind, the lowest type of a coward, and therefore wholly beneath my notice. Here is a typical begging letter. June 18th, 1908. Dear Madam, I am in such desperate need of thirty pounds to keep my home together. Will you give it to me on just the chance that I may be able to return it to you in three months from now? If you will give an address, I am sure I can. My reasons are many for writing to you, but I cannot explain them. Would you call and see me, if at all possible, or may I see you? Yours sincerely, I.H.B. Then again, all the dearest pets, monies, parrots, in short, all sorts of animals have been urged on me for sale by their fond possessors. A snake charmer even conceived the idea of my perhaps caring for his snakes. March 10th, 1908 Dear Miss Allen, I am writing you to know whether you have ever thought of using snakes or pythons as an adjunct to your oriental dances. You need not necessarily come in contact with them yourself, so there would not be the smallest danger. If you are at all interested in the idea, I should be pleased to discuss the matter with you when we might come to some arrangement. I would undertake to manage the snakes, as I have been used to handling them. I have had the idea in my mind, but have never thought of carrying it out before. It would certainly make a unique background for a dance. Yours truly, R. H. But I have many compensations for my efforts, and take pleasure in giving my reader a few letters of commendation and appreciation. A clergyman remembers me on August 29th with the following lines. August 29th, Beheading of S. John Baptist Whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. The commemoration of the beheading of S. John Baptist today made me remember you and constrains me to thank you for the pleasure and inspiration that your perfect gift has offered to me and to so many others. 
Another of London's church dignitaries writes me, June 24, 1908 Madam, in your wonderful dances this evening I have seen poems of motion more beautiful and entrancing than anything else I have ever beheld. I am a country clergyman who lives among beautiful things and loves beautiful things, so this must be my apology for writing to you. I know that some people have acted in a way that must have caused you pain, and so I want to tell you that the rector of an English parish, far away from towns, will always think of you as one who has made the beautiful world more beautiful and given pure joy to others. I leave London on Friday, but great hope to see you dance before I go, for I have never seen such dancing as yours, and it is the only dancing I greatly care to see again. Name Unknown Still another, and one known and honoured by almost every churchman in London. August 7th, 1908 Dear Miss Allen, I beg to thank you for your thoughtful reply. Alas, I fear the artistic eye is lacking in many of us. St. John the Baptist is a sort of patron saint to mission-spirited folk, and his martyrdom moves the depths of our being. Oberammergau is not allowed in England, and if you knew the deep religious fervor of its peasants, you would understand why they will not perform away from their native surroundings. I rejoice in your high ideals, and pray that you may ever be protected from what would lower them. Sincerely yours, name unknown. Then a tiny girlie tells me in her own little way, My dear Miss Maud Allen, Mother took me to see your dance, and I think you dance most beautiful, and I should like to see you again, and I do an Eastern dance. It is like one of the dances you do and you a long dress, and a gold crown, and gold langlers, and I am eight years old, and I am nine in October's, and I hope I will be able to see you dance again, and goodbye with love from Queenie H., and I hope you will understand my writing. XXXXXX One of your greatest sculptors, whose works I have always admired, wrote me the following kind letter. July 8, 1908 To Miss Maud Allen As one who has studied Greek art for forty years, and more especially the art of sculpture, I hope that you will permit me to express what great delight your performance of classical dances has given this afternoon. I am unable to resist the impulse to write and thank you for the exquisite pleasure which the greatest art alone can give. I had heard much praise from a brother academician, but you have surpassed it. You have, I think, the proud position of being the greatest living exponent of Greek art. In all sincerity yours, R.T. Is it any wonder I feel happy? It is my one ambition to become from day to day more perfect in the art I have chosen, and such words of praise as the above will help and guide me. Still another very charming and sincere letter reached me on July 16, 1908. Dear Madam, 
I should be ungrateful if I did not try to express my appreciation of thy art. I am a Quaker, and had never before visited a theatre, but from my early years I have been devoted to Greek art, as when working all day in the British Museum Library I used ever to turn for refreshment to the Parthenon marbles. So, after reading thy article in the London magazine, I came to see thee, and certainly thou reached my ideal, which is saying much. The joy of thy spring dance conveyed itself in a way that astonished me. I had expected to be charmed, but I may add, as an unlooked-for result, that a trouble I had had with bad thoughts and ugly imaginations has disappeared since seeing thee. As the devil could not stay in the presence of our Lord, so no bad thought can stand before a good woman if she had the power of expressing her nature. Thy art gives thee this power in an unequalled degree. One is impressed just as one is by Greek sculpture, only that a living being is vastly more expressive than marble. When as a tour de force thou shows Salome, I cannot doubt that I was still more impressed by thy own character, thy rendering, for whatever else an artist depicts, he depicts himself. How can a man be concealed, says Emerson, and having this great gift of expression, mayest thou ever faithfully guard the God whose temple thou art? How shall they worship her whom they have not seen, and how shall they see without an artist? A woman is to a man the shrine where the highest is visibly manifested, and her beauty of form, when expressing beauty within, can drive the evil out of him quicker than anything else in the world, excepting love itself. When in the Greek story Hera appeared to Jason and Pallas to Perseus, we cannot suppose that they impaired their power by superfluous attire. And this perception of clothing as a hindrance was, I believe, no mere survival from the world's youth, but a special gift to the Greeks, and prophetic of what mankind will eventually arrive at. The place where one first sees a woman counts for something. For me, it was by a lake in the high Alps, in whose dark water she and the dazzling snow of the mountains were mirrored. I had almost a fear of her, but she had none of me, and looking round on the solitary rocks, she said she loved to be naked. Like Wordsworth's Lucy, my wife, though brought up as a Puritan, was nature's child, and as such, and as an artist, would have been delighted with thee. The hearts of men that fondly here admire fair-seeming shows may lift themselves up higher and learn to love with zealous duty the eternal fountain of that heavenly beauty. Thine sincerely. Name Unknown Lastly, I give to your notice an extremely illumined letter, and one which interested me greatly. June 25th, 1908. Madam, I am so much struck by the power and passion you display in your vision of Salome that I am venturing to enclose a few notes on the historical personage which may or may not be of use to you. 
I have seen you more than once, and each time I have been perplexed as to the meaning of the dance. You seem to interpret it as the triumph of the wildest passion, the intoxication of the power of beauty, revulsion at the crime and fascination for the ghastly evidence of it. In this you portray the Salome of opera, but my studies have, aided by your performance, led me to understand the Salome of history. Possibly you may know what I am trying to explain, but I think I can put some parts of the story in a new light. The family of Herod was one of the most remarkable in antiquity. They numbered many men of genius, and all the women we know of were remarkably gifted with brain and beauty. Despite the biblical notices, very scanty, and the artistic representation of the Herods, there were two conspicuous features in the entire race. One, deep affection liable to be succeeded by fits of hatred and generally remorse. Two, a certain magnanimity. Herod the Great showed this later in his manly speech to Augustus after the battle of Actium, so did his great-granddaughter Bernice when she risked her life to save the Jews from massacre. So did Herodias when her husband received sentence of banishment from the emperor, and she was pardoned. She said, Thou indeed, O emperor, actest after a magnificent manner, and as becomest thyself in that which thou offeredst me. But the kindest which I have for my husband hinders me from partaking of the favor of thy gift." for it is not just that I who have been a partner in his prosperity should forsake him in his misfortunes. For this she was sent penniless into exile. They were a wicked race, but they never lacked a certain grandeur. Even Herodos, the unfaithful wife of her first husband, could prove loyal to the man she loved. Now Salome was her daughter, and, according to one reading of St. Mark, adopted, of Herod, before whom she danced. She was his heiress. He had no son, and his promise to give her what she wished was not unnatural. In fact, I believe that St. Mark's story is genuine history. Let me just set it before you. Herod attested John, but was attracted by his teaching. He kept him in prison to have his life. He often, however, conferred with him and was much perplexed what to do. This is the correct rendering. That is, he was uncertain whether he would dismiss Herodias and take back his lawful wife or not. This would have meant ruin to Salome's mother. Now what happened is capable of a twofold explanation. Either Salome was a child. The little princess danced and so delighted her adopted father that he bade her ask a favor. For this case, the tragedy of the Baptist dying at the request of a child who hardly knew what it meant is indeed a terrible one, and the name Vision is an apt one, as Salome may see as a woman the part she enacted as a child. Or, Salome consented to dance to save her mother when she was a grown woman. In this case, it was an act of heroism, and there would be a mingling of shame at the princess thus condescending the purpose shown in the intensity of the barbaric dance, the triumph of her beauty, terror at the crime, madness and collapse, this you portray in your wonderful performance. In the opera, I believe, and certainly in Oscar Wilde's play, Herod is represented as a lustful tyrant, 
and Salome as enamored of the Baptist, but the story as we have it is in a far nobler key. Pray do not think that I wish to suggest improvements. Your genius alone must be your guide. But every notice of you I have read describes you as a student, and my sole excuse in writing is to put before you a side you may have overlooked, namely, that the possibilities of the true story are far better for a tragic presentation of the dance than the operatic version, which is, I am bound to say, in a measure justified by the interpretation put upon the passage in St. Mark's by all the commentators." but I must not weary you with details, even if you have troubled to read thus far. My only excuse for troubling you is my admiration for the artistic perfection of your work. Yours faithfully, Dr. Name Unknown. So, dear reader, those who have written me and criticized me in a spirit of friendliness and otherwise, I say to them all, I have not taken offence, for, as the leaves of the forest differ one from the other, so human minds, individual and critical, must look upon every question in life as each conscience and soul dictates. And for all the beautiful letters of praise and appreciation for my humble efforts to revive an art, beautiful in its origin, and for hundreds of years lost to us, I thank the writers, one and all, most gratefully.